sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be having an on-the-ground report from Tampa about the devastation of Hurricane Ian, what grassroots response have looked like amid the basically complete non-response from the state and federal government. Also going to be talking about the end of a ceasefire in Yemen between the Houthis and the Yemeni government. Also going to be touching on how the U.S. government is trying to grapple with a Latin America region that is increasingly progressive and is as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. For the past few weeks, I've been going to home hemodialysis training with my Aunt Clara, who is my care partner. We spend a lot of time in the car and hours at the center learning how to do the hemodialysis process at home. But a lot of that time is spent with me actually on the dialysis machine getting treatment three and a half hours to be exact, four days a week. And the nurses leave after they've helped me do the initial setup. And it's just me and Aunt Clara hanging out in the dialysis center for the rest of the day. So we chat a lot. And in the chatting, she'd ask me about a thing or two she'd heard on the news. Is this true? What is that about? What's really going on? I treasure this time with my aunt because I love her and we have fun together, even though this is very serious business, me fighting for my life and all. But I'm especially grateful that she will listen to me tell her the real skinny on what the U.S. government is doing. She asks and she trusts me to tell her the truth behind the lies that she knows she's being fed on the news. Like the narrative in the U.S. that Russia is illegally annexing four regions in Ukraine. Of course, the narrative here is that Russia is just bum-rushing the Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson regions and forcing them to join the Russian Federation as some grand scheme of their unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. But you know that's not true. And I happily told my Aunt Clara why. You and I have talked about how The Donetsk and Luhansk regions have been fighting the neo-Nazi-infused Ukrainian army for eight years after the 2014 coup that unleashed them on those regions, mercilessly bombing the mostly working-class industrial centers because the people there did not want to remain a part of Ukraine after the neo-Nazis were legitimized in that coup. Those people, most of whom are ethnic Russian, remember, had been asking for help for Russia from Russia since 2014, and Russia has provided very limited support. The U.S. has always called the presence of Russian troops in these regions Russian occupation, without saying anything about the Ukrainian army waging a war against the people there. They had voted to be independent from Ukraine before in 2015, and then-President Barack Obama announced on the floor of Congress that the U.S. and the international community would not recognize the will of those people through their own democratic process to separate from Ukraine. How democratic of the democratic president of the so-called greatest democracy in the world to decide that someone else exercising their democratic right to self-determination is invalid. Oh, how sway. 
Nevertheless, it's no surprise that these regions have now voted not just to be recognized as separate regions from Ukraine, but specifically to rejoin the Russian Federation to be a part of Russia with two additional regions, Zaporizhia and Kherson, joining them. So now they're officially part of the Russian Federation as Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed the legal documents completing the incorporation of these regions into Russian territory after 98%, over 98% actually, of the people in the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics voted in favor of the measure, while 93% voted for it in Zaporizhia and 87% voted for it in the Kurzon region. The U.S. media calls this an annexation of these regions or the forcible acquisition of one state's territory by another state, usually following a military occupation, but that is absolutely not what happened here. This is what the people in those regions wanted, regardless of whether the U.S., the U.N., and the so-called international community of warmongering imperialist collaborators likes it, agrees with it, or tells the truth about it, which they will never do, which is why we do. And it's especially important to continue to tell the truth about what the U.S. has done and is continuing to do in Ukraine as the Biden administration has just announced an additional $625 million in military aid to Ukraine. The White House further issued a statement on the successful referendum that, quote, President Biden also affirmed the continued readiness of the United States to impose severe costs on any individual, entity or country that provides support to Russia's purported annexation, end quote. That's that word annexation again, and that this is decidedly not that. But note how Biden is fine with threatening those who actually respect the right to self-determination through democratic means that the people in those regions exercised. Another $625 million to the country that's banned speaking and displaying the Russian language, that has shut down opposition parties, that has shut down media outlets and runs one state-controlled media outlet, that has made unions illegal, and has neo-Nazis in its parliament and army. But the people who actually voted to decide who they wanted to be aligned with, they get the business end of U.S. bombs. I told my Aunt Clara that this country is not and never has been a democracy, but it is a dictatorship, a dictatorship of capitalist imperialism that the whole world is fighting to stop. She asked me when would more people in this country wake up and see the truth. I told her that's why we do what we do. And you know what my Auntie Clara said? She said, y'all keep doing it then. Indeed, we will. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Yeah, shout out to Auntie Clara. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary.
And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And we're very happy to be joined by Carla Correa and Jack Wallace, organizers with the Tampa Bay branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Carla, Jack, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Carla, Jack, as I say, you both are in Tampa, a city in Florida that has been positively devastated uh, by the recent Hurricane Ian, which I believe made landfall as a Category 4 storm uh, here recently. And uh, the most recent reports that I've seen is uh, showing at least 109 people uh, reported killed by the hurricane, uh, with 105 of those deaths in Florida, uh, 55 of them in Lee County and reportedly around 10,000 Floridians still accounted for. Now, I really want to get into, you know, what the government response uh, uh, has been to this uh, hurricane. But even before that, I actually would like to hear some of you all sort of personal experiences with how you saw uh, uh, the storm play out. And so, uh, Carla, I'll begin with you and just curious, I mean, what it was like having to sort of deal uh, with this storm. Yeah, so it really floors me, the lack of preparedness from our government at the state level, at the local level. Like, we are very prone to hurricanes here in Florida. We literally have hurricane season, um, especially these communities right along the water. So the lack of preparedness really floors me because, like, you know, for example, with Lee County, they didn't get an, uh, a mandatory evacuation um, it was less than 24 hours before the hurricane made landfall before they got that. You know, we got uh, mandatory evacuations here, um, but basically no help to actually evacuate. Like, we are pretty much left on our own to evacuate. And like me, for example, I don't have a car. I don't, I barely have money to even buy basic hurricane supplies to prepare for the hurricane. So I definitely wasn't able to evacuate. Um, and you know, the, the cops were going around saying the cops were going around with loudspeakers saying, you know, you know, it's, it's evacuation time. There will be no help for you. It's like, thanks. You know, it's like, we should have like millions of dollars, billions of dollars set aside, um, for these vulnerable communities that are near the water. Um, but we don't have anything like that. We don't have like designated evacuation centers that we could go to like anything that would make sense to prepare for this hurricane. It was just nothing. People are just left to fend for themselves. So when that happens, of course, it's like the most poor are going to bear the brunt of it. You know, the incarcerated are going to bear the brunt of it. Lee County, they didn't evacuate um, inmates in a, in a jail downtown. Meanwhile, it wasn't a mandatory evacuation zone. So, you know, we just saw a complete lack of preparedness from the government. Absolutely. And uh, Jack, same question to you. Yeah, I was going to say uh, most of the same things that, that Carla brought up. But yeah, like like, like she said, Lee County uh, didn't issue their evacuation notice until midday on Tuesday. Uh, the hurricane was making landfall in Lee County that night. Um, so it's just a complete sort of lack of um, preparedness by the by the state state and uh, local governments. Um, you know, like Carla said, there should be billions of dollars set aside. There should be uh, you know people at the ready. 
um, to be able to go door to door to probably give people supplies. You know, there probably should be some sort of program to provide people with some sort of aid so that they can evacuate or just, you know, uh, make the accommodations for them in, in places that, you know, around the state that um, will be able to host, you know, people fleeing from, from this hurricane. Um, but that's not at all what we saw. Uh, you know, it was a, a, a you know, basically an everybody for themselves situation, right? Um, they didn't even have um, 100% of the sandbag locations uh, with like workers there to sort of help people, um, you know, put sand in these heavy sandbags to bring back to their uh, homes so they could try to fortify it, right? Like most of these were, had no workers there to help people, right? And of course, the, the people, the most, the people who are most likely to stay, right? Uh, the poor, the elderly, the disabled, right? They, most times they can't use those sort of things like those uh, sandbags, right? They can't be doing that sort of work themselves. And so it just sort of, I think the sort of the sandbag situation is just a good representation of the, the lack of preparedness um, by the city um, and uh, county and uh, state governments here in Florida. And, you know, Carla, I think you mentioned something about uh, prison populations and the lack of preparedness uh, for incarcerated people uh, in the face of this hurricane. What was done uh, to ensure that people who are in prison were safe from the hurricane, or if anything? Yeah, pretty much nothing. I mean, afterwards, they said that they moved them up a floor, um, but we haven't gotten many updates from that specific jail. Like, you know, the, the, the government obviously does not care about incarcerated people. Like now we're seeing there, there a new report just came out saying that they are giving them like brown drinking water while the guards are getting bottled water. So it's not like they don't have access to it. It's just that they do not care about the lives of inmates. So it's it's really gross to see that. Yeah, and Jack, I'm definitely wondering what has emergency response and community response look like at the grassroots level? How are we seeing um, organizers, neighbors, and you know, just your everyday people uh, uh, trying to fill in the gaps and really uh, provide uh, that kind of help that uh, the government is really dragging its feet on? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the local uh, branch uh, that me and Carla are part of, of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, right, sort of sprang into action uh, pretty much immediately. Um, and, you know, to, to distribute that uh, relief aid into areas destroyed by Hurricane Ian, right? Um, of course, it's not just us. There's lots of other different groups that are that are providing this relief aid, right? And sort of, you know, even people like coming as far as uh, like uh, uh, North Carolina and Tennessee sort of like putting on big convoys of supplies trying to, to bust things down, right? Um, and, you know, while the people look out for one another, um, we're, we're demanding, like, full relief from the federal government and state government for the people of Florida, right? The, it really should be the government that should be taking care of these people. Um, the government has immense resources and could have taken care of everybody in Florida, and now instead we're seeing, like, a catastrophe unfold, right? It's, it's just really unfortunate. Um, that the government didn't prepare anybody, right? You know, there was no sort of um, any way that people could really be prepared for a hurricane like this, which was almost, I believe it was five miles per hour away uh, from being a Category 5 storm. Uh, this is going to be one of the most deadly storms that we've had since, uh, I believe, 1925 here in the state of Florida. And, you know, it's, it's, it's come upon the people to help themselves rather than any sort of systematic response. And, of course, uh, what we have is only a drop in the bucket um, and that's, you know, that's why we're making um, full-throated demands of the federal and the city or in the state governments here in Florida and, uh, of course, uh, the federal government in Washington, D.C. 
Yeah, and I think this raises the question for me, Carla, about the the uh, availability and I guess the utility of things like the National Flood Insurance Program uh, and FEMA assistance. I think every year uh, during hurricane season, season in whatever uh, state, we, we're always reminded that there is a National Flood Insurance Program and that so many people who are in impacted areas are not participants in the program. Why Why is this an issue? And why isn't it more readily access, uh, accessed and available to more people? Yeah, it's a huge issue because, you know, the places that we've gone to, you know, South Sarasota was hit pretty hard. And, you know, people are saying FEMA is nowhere to be found. It's like, it's been days since the hurricane hit, uh, insurance companies are not calling people back. They're nickel and diming people when they do call people back saying, you know, we'll only give you this amount for your, you know, broken roof, things like that. So, you know, we're not seeing that, you know, the government or these insurance companies are stepping in and, you know, they're not, it's not readily available because it's not prioritized because it's not planned because, you know, when there's a profit motive, it's not, you know, it's not going to be what's, what's going to help the most amount of people. So, you know, a lot of people are feeling abandoned by FEMA. A lot of people, like some people that we talked to um, this week, they applied for FEMA aid. They literally lost their home. And then FEMA said that they weren't in a disaster zone. So they, they're, so people are like actively being denied by FEMA, not to mention the fact that, if you're undocumented and you don't have a green card, you can't get FEMA assistance. And we have a huge undocumented population here in Florida, over 770,000 undocumented people. And some of the hardest hit areas like Arcadia and Immokalee are, have huge, huge Hispanic and undocumented population. So, you know, those communities are really going to be left in the dark by the federal government. Yeah. And, you know, as a native Floridian myself, I mean, I've seen uh, my fair share of hurricanes also, and they seem to always sort of uh, play out the same way in terms of the response. And in terms of FEMA, I mean, I feel like historically, if we look at uh, Hurricane Katrina, which, of course, waylaid New Orleans, really changing it forever, uh, that's really pretty par for the course. But there's another aspect to all of this as well. Now that uh, Tampa and other places affected by the hurricane being basically uh, left to pick up the pieces by themselves. There's the question of, well, what will recovery look like moving forward? And recently, uh, Ron DeSantis, of course, the far right governor of the state of Florida, recently said, quote, you're looking at a storm that's changed the character of a significant part of our state. This is going to require years of effort to be able to rebuild and to come back. Now, on its face, that all seems fine. But not only only with DeSantis as an individual, but just in how we know the way that this capitalist system operates in general, I have some serious questions about just who Tampa and other impacted areas of Florida will be rebuilt for. Because if the current response is any indication, it doesn't seem like it will be for the benefit of poor, working, and oppressed people. And it seems like we could be looking at uh, the potential for what some people call uh, a disaster 
disaster capitalism or basically using a natural disaster as a way to uh, build up uh, uh, infrastructure and uh, uh, communities and amenities and other things that are uh, clearly catered to, you know, wealthy and more well-off and affluent people. But I mean, Jack, uh, what is your estimation of uh, this whole notion of rebuilding? Now, of course, it hasn't started quite yet and we don't have a crystal ball. But again, you know, some of these broader uh, uh, dynamics, at least to me, seems like it uh, spells out a picture that is less than sunny. Yeah, you know, I mean, we can look at, like you said, we can look to the past to see how rebuilding efforts have gone uh, in other places that have been hit by massive hurricanes. Of course, Katrina is sort of, the, um, you know, the most preeminent example of this, right? Um, you know, the, the, the black folks in, in, uh, in New Orleans were pushed out, right? They, they were not welcome after the uh, the rebuilding process started right there they were climate refugees right and that's 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 what's going to be happening here in fort myers um and uh, lee county and sort of the the state of florida uh in general we've actually already got um sort of reporting on the ground from uh, a black neighborhood in fort myers called dunbar um that you know there are, people are already saying like hey you know the, the the richer areas are already getting their power restored you know the richer areas are, are getting their uh you know like the floodwaters um sort of like pumped out and pushed out um quicker and, and you know better than than they are you know they, they haven't come here yet where is fema um you know where where is where is the the rebuilding actually going to happen here in the state of florida is it going to be in the the richer and the white areas or is it going to be uh, for the poor and the working class and you know it's certainly not uh, profitable to build um, uh, homes that are actually affordable for for working people. Uh, you know, Florida has had lots of real estate booms over the years, and you know this might be um, another opportunity for sort of these parasitic uh, capitalists, uh, whether they be real estate developers or otherwise, to come in and you know use this opportunity where um, there's so much suffering and, and destruction to say, okay, let's clear this out, and you know we we can make some more luxury condos and uh, you know rent them out to, to folks who you know only live there say three weeks a year um and you know that's really what we're going to see i don't have a crystal ball like you said but um if i had to make a prediction um it would be bad for the uh this rebuilding process is going to be bad for the working class and uh, for people of color here in the state of florida and it's going to be good for uh the profit the profit margins i guess of the the largest corporations uh here in the united states yeah, and on that note, Carla, you mentioned a moment ago the fact that Florida has a hurricane season. It's understood that at a certain point of every year, the state is going to have to grapple with these storms and the potential uh, human and uh, infrastructure fallout from that. Yet and still, there is this obstinate refusal to not only properly prepare, but to also have a proper response and basically, you know, leave people are swinging in the wind. And I can't help but think about the fact that about, you know, 90 or 100 miles south of uh, Florida is Cuba, a small socialist island nation that has been under attack with a, a criminal unilateral uh, blockade uh, authored by the U.S. that uh, during uh, Hurricane Ian, that I believe was a Category 3 when it struck there, they were able to evacuate, evacuate over 50 
thousand people. And this is not a fluke. This is actually part and parcel of Cuba's very robust uh, sort of natural disaster crisis response, uh, uh, if you will. And so during every hurricane, we see very little uh, human life lost during uh, uh, these different hurricanes in Cuba. And that same support for uh, people being able to get what they need, even despite uh, uh, attacks from uh, the U.S. and this blockade that uh, U.S. imperialism refuses to lift. And so for me, it's almost like a tale of two systems. And we're told that, you know, uh, Cuba is this awful place and that there's this communist government that it it just behaves in a devilish, uh, uh, despotic way towards its people. But yet and still, this socialist country uh, seems to always have a better response to this very issue than we have here in the wealthiest nation on earth. And so I just feel like it shows sort of the real differences between the capitalist system and the socialist system and which one uh, uh, really prioritizes humanity. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And not to mention the fact that, you know, in terms of building where the hurricane hit the worst, those places should have never been built in the first place. But you know, these real estate developers, they're only concerned with short-term profit. So they've destroyed our natural environment, the, the places that are supposed to protect the inland areas from hurricanes and flooding, things like that, to build these homes that have now been destroyed. So, frankly, they really shouldn't be building more um, over on these vulnerable areas. You know, we should actually be doing things to protect the environment. And not to mention the fact that we have 1.7 million vacant homes here in Florida. That number, of course, probably changed with the hurricane. But according to the latest census data last year, you know, we have mil- we have 1.7 million vacant homes here. You know, a, a relocation effort, you know, in, a, in an economy that was planned around the people, how cute has that would make the most sense is actually bringing people to to places that are safe and not you know pulling a katrina so to speak and just you know privatizing everything you know how they privatize the schools and you know using it as an opportunity to make profit disaster capitalism i think you called it you know we need to actually make sure that people are safe from, you know, what's coming, because there's going to be more hurricanes, there's going to be more tornadoes, there's going to be more flooding, and the capitalist system is not prepared to respond to that. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And, uh, you know, what do you think is needed for the recovery of so many people that the people themselves can do at this point? Because it's clear there's no response that's going to be adequate from the government. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the the most important thing that we feel like and, and something that uh, we've been trying to do is uh, we're, we're trying to get organized, right? We're trying to organize folks because um, the, the government certainly isn't going to um, give the people what they need uh, without any sort of pressure. Um, so we actually have a couple different demands. Um, and, you know, one of them is releasing billions of dollars in FEMA aid for that home and community uh, rebuilding, right? And for incomes, no strings attached and no paperwork obstacles for people to receive help. Um, we need emergency responders into all affected areas, not just the rich and the white, immediately to assist in that recovery effort. 
you know, we, we, we want to, uh, the government to provide food and shelter for all people as long as the disaster lasts and transfer all people incarcerated in affected areas to safe out-of-state facilities. You know, we're, we're bringing attention to the fact that um, we need money for Floridians' needs, not the Pentagon and not the war in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, we need that full federal investment to tackle climate change, which is increasing the frequency and severity of hurricanes like Ian, right? And so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get the word out about this petition. We're trying to get the word out about these demands. Um, you know, we think they're, 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 they're pretty good and uh, that people uh, would uh, or get behind them, right? We'll definitely get behind them. Um, and, you know, we've been getting people to sign as we've been doing our, our outreach and, and relief efforts uh, down there in Lee County and uh, Northport and sort of the affected areas. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, like any other um, problem that we face in, in this capitalist society, what we do in order to change it, how the people change it, is by getting organized. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you so much, Carla and Jack, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments happening inside Yemen. And we're happy to be joined for the conversation today by Yemeni journalist Nasseh Shakir. Nasseh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Nasseh, as the civil war in Yemen rolls on, uh, reportedly the two sides here, both the the government and the Houthis, uh, have failed to reach uh, an agreement in terms of extending their truce, this uh, U.N.-backed ceasefire that I believe first took place in April, took effect is what I mean to say. And uh, it seems that uh, both sides are uh, blaming uh, each other for this issue. Uh, Yemeni Foreign Minister Ahmed Awad bin Mubarak uh, recently told uh, the media platform Al-Hadath that, quote, the government made many concessions to extend the truce uh, with the Houthis, saying that it is, in fact, the government that has uh, sort of thrown a monkey wrench in the works, if you will. And so to begin, uh, help us understand, perhaps, first of all, what were the terms of this ceasefire and why do you think uh, that there's been a failure to extend it here? Well, uh, let me start with you by telling you that the truce is a humanitarian and a military truce. Uh, the humanitarian side of this truce is that Saudi coalition start opening uh, Sana'a International Airport for humanitarian flights because the Saudi coalition blocked uh, Sana'a International Airport in uh, in uh, 2016 and never allowed any flights from this airport except for UN flights. The second condition was about leaving the blockade on Hodeida port. That is that is an entry for nearly 80% of the humanitarian aid into Yemen. The third option is that leaving or swapping the prisoners because there is over 50, 15,000 prisoners of war between 
uh, Ansarullah movement and the Saudi government and the Saudi coalition. Uh, during the uh, during the first, uh, it was a two month truce, okay, from two April into June twenty into June two. Then was extended into another time into uh, August two. Then it was extended for third uh, for second time into October two. Uh, to allow the Yemeni warring parties to discuss how can this truce be extended and allow the expansion of this truce, but because each party is accusing the other of, uh, for example, the Saudi government is accusing Ansarullah movement of not allowing the or removing the, the what they call blockade on Taiz province, but Ansarullah has allowed, has opened one road that is called 50-60 road from one side because the other, uh, the Saudi government is asking Ansarullah movement to open a main road that can be allowed only for the uh, military vehicles, for the UAE backed military vehicles to enter into areas under the Ansarullah movement. They said we cannot allow this until there is an expanded truce for another six months so that the roads in Taiz can be uh, opened and in, in other areas like in Mara province and in Adala and other areas. So, and also Ansarullah are demanding for the expansion of the truce to uh, pay the salaries because Saudi government ordered by the Americans uh, insisted uh, America has uh, blocked uh, SWIFT of Yemen. We cannot receive any transfer. Okay, we, Yemen has been now is like Russia. There is no SWIFT for dollar. Only European SWIFT bank that can allow tra back transfers into Yemen. So uh, we can say the 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 Saudi coalition is not really uh, ready to. Uh, pay the salaries because when uh, the central bank was transferred from Sana'a into Aden, that is under the occupation of the Emirates and the Saudis, uh, they did not pay the salaries from the revenues of the oil and, and from the oil and gas that is being uh, sold and the money deposited at the Saudi National Bank and never paid the salaries. Yemeni salaries are dependent on the oil and the oil and gas revenues. So now the United Nations and the Americans, the US envoy to Yemen, is ready to pay the salaries of only teachers and nurses, but not the soldiers of defense ministry and interior ministry. And Ansarullah refused this. They said, we want to pay the salaries because when Ansarullah took over the Sana'a in September 21st, and they continue to pay the salaries of, of all soldiers, even those who are fighting them, until the central bank was transferred from Sana'a in August 2016, and then they were not able to pay the salaries. They said the Saudi bank government should pay the salaries from the revenues of the oil and gas that is being uh, sold uh, by the Saudi-led coalition. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, given what you've explained here, Nasseh, it makes me wonder, I mean, at this point, I mean, do you foresee any potential for there to be, you know, another kind of a ceasefire or truce? Uh, do you think that perhaps things are past that point? Uh, you know, I'm not asking you to predict the future, of course, but I mean, how do you see things uh, potentially moving forward from here um, as it pertains to, you know, the uh, the Ansar Allah movement and the Yemeni government? Yeah. Look, yesterday, uh, for example, the uh, the ceasefire ex expired on October 2. And from October 2, there was a flight, okay, on Monday. It's supposed to be 
uh, Yemen Airways to, 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 to operate a flight from Sana'a into Jordan, not to Egypt, because according to the ceasefire that expired, there should be two flights on Monday and Friday from Sana'a to Jordan and from Sana'a to Egypt. But the Saudi coalition did not allow the flight to Egypt. That's what makes the expansion of the truce very difficult. Now, yesterday, the Yemen Airways started to announce uh, the uh, Yemen flight. Today, there was a Yemen Airways flight into Jordan. And today, the Yemen Airways announced there will be a second flight tomorrow, that is Thursday. This is happening without a truce, after the expiry of the truce. This is a good sign that the truce can be extended, okay, or they can be renewed in the future as negotiations are ongoing, okay? But Ansarullah are demanding that we don't want ceasefire or a humanitarian fight, like opening Hudaydah port, Opening Sana Airbus should not be connected to military fire to, to, to military operations. For example, they want the uh, operations of Sana and uh, and Hidayda both should be opened even if there is fight. Okay, but it's happened to very to be very difficult for for extending the rules. Now with these two flights today and tomorrow, this is going to be a good sign. Because until now, Ansarullah are limited to warning oil companies that they call are looting the, the oil and gas from Yemen. And uh, they are demanding these companies to get out of Yemen, to stop looting oil, gas, oil and gas. And also warning companies are operating in Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. That is blockading Yemen to stop uh, operating there and look for another country that is safe because Yemen is going to target them. Until now, after the expiry of the truce, we were expecting airstrikes. We were expecting Ansarullah movement to start uh, launching missiles towards Saudi Arabia and uh, United Arab Emirates that are uh, blockading Yemen and fighting in Yemen and destroyed our infrastructure and killed thousands of civilians. So uh, I think... Uh, uh, there are reference from our side. No air strikes, no cross-border cross attacks. It seems that the U.S. envoy to Yemen to has failed in Yemen. He is uh, he has uh, appeared to be our monger, our lord, in a, a clothes of peace. He speak about peace, but they don't war. For example, United the European Union uh, expressed its regret of not expanding the truce, but the, and said that this truce has delivered. A lot of benefits for Yemenis. The fact is not. Nothing has happened to Yemen. Oil, oil, uh, oil, fuels, tanks were detained for over one month during the truce. That uh, that cited that oil ships should enter the port without any uh, blockade, without any restrictions. But this this didn't happen. So there is no benefit for the Yemenis. Only Europe benefited from this truce. For example. Oil facilities in Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates are continuing to uh, travel towards Europe. That is impacted uh, highly by the war in Ukraine. And now they are trying to secure this. Okay, And also the second thing is that uh, Saudi Arabia is blaming America and European countries that sold its weapons, that your weapons to defend our oil companies has failed to intercept Yemeni missiles and drones. And to show that we are going to sell weapons from Russia, for example. But now, the United States is trying to barricade itself behind this truce, okay? Because they have nothing to prove that their weapons in Saudi Arabia uh, has, has, are strong to defend the Saudi airspace and their oil companies. 
Definitely. And, you know, in, in a broader sense, Nase, I'm wondering how you situate the ongoing civil war in Yemen, which I feel like I should mention is uh, really the core issue of what is one of the world's most serious uh, humanitarian uh, crises. Um, but how do you situate the conflict in Yemen with uh, other issues in the same region, in that kind of uh, South Asia, uh, Middle East sort of uh, a region? So what, what, what role does that play in uh, uh, how we're seeing other developments sort of operate uh, elsewhere? I am fairly sure that Saudi Arabia is a proxy for the United States. It is a proxy war between, uh, between, um, for example, the United States is seeking to secure Israel. For example, the Ansarullah movement held a military parade on September uh, 1 uh, last month and showed unprecedented missiles, okay, including one missile named uh, Guds missile or Jerusalem missile that is ready to reach Israel. Israel is part of this war in Yemen. Nobody can deny that. There are over 50,000 Yemeni Jews living in Israel and want to return to Yemen. And Israel is interested uh, in uh, in supporting United, United Arab Emirates that uh, assigned with its uh, Abraham Accords. So Yemen is a country that is located in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Yemen is a country uh, rich. Okay, it has uh, it has its location made it uh, made it very good for other empire countries to occupy it. Yemen is called it was occupied by Britons, was occupied by Egyptians, it was occupied by Ottomans, British, and those people all were buried in Yemen. Yemen is known as a graveyard for from faders. Now Saudi Arabia did not know that. That's why it's, it was uh, drought to fight in, 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 in Yemen. Even America couldn't fight directly in Yemen. It used um, Saudis to fight here in Yemen on the protest of sectarian war between Sunnis and Shias, given that Saudi and Sarla movement is a Zaydi Shia uh, movement, okay? And Saudi Arabia is a Sunni country. So there are different countries uh, 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 trying to... Uh, benefits from the war in Yemen, and uh, they want to drain Yemenis. They want, I think, um, uh, Muslims to continue fighting with each other, and the Americans continue to sell weapons to us. I think this is my personal perspective. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nasay, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the U.S. government is trying to reconcile with the Latin America region that is increasingly progressive. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by James Patrick Jordan, National Co-Coordinator for the Alliance for Global Justice. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. And uh, James, here recently, we've seen U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, arrive in South 
uh, America trying to basically engage uh, some of the newly elected uh, uh, leadership of the region, uh, most of whom, if not all, are of a progressive and left-leaning orientation. Uh, Of course, we recently saw uh, in Brazil Lula da Silva win the first round uh, of uh, election in Brazil. There's the recently elected government in Colombia of uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. There's uh, Giamara uh, Castro in in Honduras. And of course, there's the sort of longstanding revolutionary governments in countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. And interestingly, I saw this quote from uh, Assistant Secretary uh, uh, Brian Nichols of the State Department recently say, quote, we are not judging countries based on where they fall on the political spectrum, but rather their commitment to democracy, the rule of law and human rights. Now, uh, I think that that choice of language is really quite uh, intentional on the part of uh, uh, Washington. But I'm just sort of curious your thoughts, James, about uh, not only what you make of Blinken's trip specifically, but how you see Washington maneuvering within Latin America at this point, given uh, how the politics continue to unfold. So Washington's very concerned about uh, Latin America. And, uh, of course, Latin America, in many ways, is distancing itself or moving more distantly um, from the United States hegemony and control. Even allies are moving away from that, and I think that they're very worried about that. I think when he says they're not concerned about the politics, that's not true. Of course they are. However, there is some truth to that because let's just say, first of all, that across political spectrums, this has very little to nothing to do with the left-right perspective, um, you know, left-right designations. Um, But what we are seeing throughout Latin America is growing influence of China and a model for international trade that is a stark contrast to neoliberalism and liberalism. So I think that they're very concerned about that. And, of course, they are concerned about uh, countries, you know, exercising their sovereignty, especially those that are moving in the leftward direction. And I think one of the goals, in addition to trying to counter the Chinese influence, is also, you know, a couple things. One is to rein in the left and make it an imperialism-friendly or at least tolerant left. And when when the undersecretary talks about defending democracy or advancing democracy, that's not what they're talking about at all. They're talking about advancing the empire and, and uh, maintaining, trying to stop the erosion of U.S. power. So that's one, what's going on. And it's interesting, the three countries that they're visiting, Colombia, Peru, Chile, have been important allies of the U.S., but they are also countries where it is true um, the administration's elective elected have gone in a center left direction. However, all three of these countries, the the uh, balance of power, the situation is very uh, tenuous. It's very complicated. There's definitely strong right wings that are trying to undermine the left direction of these countries. So I suspect another aspect of the Blinken visit is just simply to. Um, I mean, they they don't want to see Latin America going in a left or independent direction. So I don't know. You know, I suspect that the U.S. is trying everything, open negotiations, 
talking talks directly to these governments, co-option, but I, I, we know that uh, interference in democracy, not support of democracy, but interference in dem- democratic choices up to and including regime change are in play in Latin America. And James, I wonder how much you think the specter, uh, the, the shadow of the disastrous summit of the Americas uh, plays on how the U.S. is approaching its relationship with countries in Latin America now, as they are seeing uh, elections in many Latin American countries going more left. Do you think that uh, the U.S. is trying to, I guess, save face as much as they can after that disastrous summit, even if their policies, they're not going to change their actual actual policies in regards to how they deal with, you know, the kind of relationship they have with uh, the countries that they're trying to court, basically, you know, showing up hat in hand, but basically all there is is a hat. There's nothing that the U.S. has to offer these countries. Yeah, I, you're 100% correct on this. Uh, I think that the U.S. is trying to save face. I think the... Um, summit of the Americas, you know, just showed how weak they are and how uh, how much the empire is crumbling. Uh, all that is going on. But I, I, I also just want to say, I think the situation for the U.S. right now, I mean, we're talking about uh, China right now uh, in terms of total trade has um, m- much more trade with uh, Brazil than the U.S. does under Bolsonaro or Lula, that's going to be true. I mean, it was true under Bolsonaro. Uh, China has much more trade with Chile, with Peru. If if China is ahead of the U.S. in trade with Argentina. Uh, Colombia, China is the second largest partner, but it's it's catching up. Uruguay is the largest partner. Venezuela is the largest partner. So I think the U.S. is seeing it's losing its grip in every way. And I think that the U.S., is going to have to adapt some policies. I mean, we know that in the visit, the first visit with uh, uh, Petro in Colombia, that several uh, differences were engaged in with uh, Blinken, Mr. Blinken. And I think that, that, that the U.S. is having to realize that Latin America is pretty much on all hands to some large extent in the process of gaining its own independence and sovereignty back from U.S. hegemony. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk about uh, that kind of U.S. hegemony, James, as it pertains specifically to Latin America, I mean, we're we're talking about uh, grappling with the histories of the Monroe Doctrine and an entire region being seen as the quote-unquote backyard of the United States. Now, uh, uh, current U.S. President Joe Biden says that, well, actually, the region is the front yard of the United States, but a yard is a possession, whether yeah. it's in the front or, or the back. And that makes me really wonder wonder about uh, what you're touching on in terms of the uh, the relevance and what it means for a progressive Latin America within the context of uh, global politics. I mean, you talked about China, of course, uh, uh, the war in Ukraine is still going on and the U.S. in terms of fighting this proxy war with Russia uh, uh, while also trying to, uh, uh, I would say, unsuccessfully stem the, the tide and peaceful rise of China 
seem to all be bound up within these other dynamics as well. You know what I mean? And as it seems as though we may be uh, beginning to see the end of a unipolar world under U.S. hegemony, it feels like uh, a progressive Latin America has an important role to play in that. But how do you see it? Oh, super important role. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I mean, in terms of the global politics, I mean, we a, a lot of people had talked uh, at different times about the emergence of a new Cold War. And I think that's a, an adequate enough analysis. But I think we have to reach further back in our history because what we're seeing is the new manifest destiny. This idea that the United States and the North Atlantic emphasis North Atlantic, that the United States and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, have some sort of God-given right and duty to uh, extend their military interventions and uh, their agenda around the world. The um, You know, right now, of course, what we're seeing in, in, in the war uh, between Ukraine and Russia, that war could also be called a war against NATO expansionism in Eastern Europe, because whatever one thinks about of Russia's actions, whatever, you know, you don't have to defend Russia to recognize that the U.S. NATO uh, lies and provocations and expansion uh, provoked this war into happening. And NATO right now, of course, it has this partnership with Colombia. It undertook unprecedented um military exercises in the Caribbean. NATO has intervened in uh, Africa, in Libya, and is putting together a rapid response force for Africa. This is a NATO force. NATO is uh, has major partnerships in Japan, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. So there is this idea, these people believe that NATO, that U.S. NATO uh, hegemony empire, first of all, is synonymous with their version of democracy, which is not democracy, but it's a new manifest destiny, this idea that they have a right to extend their power and their military might around the world. And that's what's been being challenged and is being challenged nowhere so strongly as in Latin America both for the purposes of Latin American countries, but also because China especially, but also Russia, have stepped in to fill a vacuum uh, created by neoliberalism and U.S. imperial policies, and they presented an alternative. What we're basically seeing, uh, both with the advances of the left and unfortunately with the advances of the right that are occurring in the world today, what we're seeing is a contest over the rotting corpse of liberalism and neoliberalism, the utter failure of neoliberalism. And that uh, vacuum is being filled. And hopefully in this uh, worldwide struggle that's taking place, that Latin America and the entire world are going to move towards socialism and away from fascism, because that's the only alternative to fascism. But I will say in regards to China and Russia that the International aid and support that they provide for Latin America is a real alternative and a step towards sovereignty because neoliberalism tramples sovereignty. Sovereignty It removes all barriers for no other reason than privatization and profit 
robbing resources, stealing resources, and and uh, all sorts of gains and taking it to other already rich countries. And when the U.S. does undertake social investment, that social investment in other countries is undertaken in consultation with the Pentagon. It is always related to military uh designs. So when the U.S. deals with Latin America and the rest of the world, when they trade, neoliberalism not only privatizes, but it also brings in, brings about military occupations or collaborations and investment because the Pentagon acts as the private insurance or as the insurance company for neoliberalism and private corporations. So Latin America is part of this turning away from neoliberalism, which is in decline, which is a putrid, and turning towards other models. And so far, they're turning towards the left. They're getting a lot of support from uh, China and Russia in a way that doesn't compromise their sovereignty, and especially from China. China is investing all over Latin America to build an infrastructure that serves Latin America. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, James, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us. Hear it by any means necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. 
We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, first thing I want to say, I'm very happy to have my uh, co-host, comrade, and friend, uh, Jackie Lutman, back on the show with us today. And I wanted to start today, Jackie, by talking about something that we've been touching on, uh, I think, uh, a decent bit here by any means necessary. And certainly, I think we'll be digging into it uh, deeper as time goes on. And that's the issue of what I see as an all-out assault on some of the core and fundamental democratic rights of people here in the United States. And what I wanted to begin with specifically is the issue of the uh, racist voter suppression and what is an attack from the Supreme Court, which has a far-right majority, an attack from the Supreme Court on black voting rights. So as people may be aware, there's a case being heard right now, Merrill versus Milligan. And what lie at the center of this case, it's a challenge to a map of congressional districts that was drawn up by Alabama, their state government. And frankly, the way that these districts were drawn, it was just so obviously racist and so obviously designed to basically uh, uh, remove the political impact of black votes that a federal court actually ruled it illegal. It was that blatant. It was that transparent. Right. And so under Alabama's uh, map, there's only one majority black congressional district in all of the state even though 27% of the population of Alabama is black, right? And so what's really uh, at issue here is this effort to overturn Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act states that uh, new voting laws or any other changes to uh, the electoral system of a state can be challenged in court on the ground that they are uh, discriminatory, racially discriminatory. And uh, the Supreme Court seems like they really want to roll that back. Now, of course, when we talk about uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, we're talking about these two pieces of legislation that effectively helped in a formal system of apartheid in the United States or what we call Jim Crow. And see, when we talk about excluding black people from this kind of participation in even the most basic of uh, uh, political processes in the United States, this was something that was a key aspect of uh, the betrayal of Reconstruction. You see what I mean? And so uh, in this effort that's obviously a part of trying to overturn black people's rights to vote as it's enshrined in the 15th Amendment, I think that there's a sector of the capitalist ruling class and, you know, the political elite that serve at their behest. They basically want to make black votes meaningless. Right. And the way that they want to do this is by uh, putting these voting districts and making them so dispersed 
that uh, uh, basically black folks will always be in the voting minority. And since they cannot get, and when I say they, I mean the far right wing of the ruling class. Since the far right wing of the ruling class in the United States um, aren't able to get popular support for this uh, uh, piece of their agenda, because the people of the United States, just in general, even I think some of its, uh, 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 some elements of its right wing, uh, you know, won't be either won't be on board with outright attacking black voting rights or either won't say it publicly since they can't count on public support. They seem to be weaponizing the Supreme Court to that same end. You know what I mean? And I just feel like uh, we're seeing an assault, like I say, on popular participation in these political processes. And this is it's just so striking to me, Jackie, and really should be striking to anyone who's really seeing what's happening, particularly because the United States, a country that tells itself and the world that it is the shining sitting or city on a hill. It is this beacon of democracy and all of that, where we're told constantly that the act of voting is the ultimate political act. And basically nothing else matters. Now, of course, you and I would would disagree with that as organizers. Voting is a fine thing to do, but it's just one of many things that we can do. Right. And so for all of the valorizing and glamorizing of the vote and even the way that the United States pats itself on the back for, quote unquote, giving uh, black people the right to vote. You know, the U.S. has this really arrogant way of thinking about this. It says, well, we freed the slaves. We gave people uh, we gave black folks the right to vote. No, we fought and died for that. Right. But even within that, we see these uh, uh, blatant attacks. And so among a lot of other things, Jackie, I think it highlights the hypocrisy of this country and uh, uh, this system. And I also want to note about how not only would this sort of thing impact black voters specifically, it would also impact poor voters in general. So here again, we're faced with this uh, inescapable intertwined dynamic of race and class. And so I've been rambling for a while here, Jackie, but what I'm really getting at here is uh, we're in a situation where the far right elements of the ruling class are engaging this assault and the center right elements are refusing to fight. And so more than ever, it's clear that it's the people who will have to uh, uh, really take this up and, and really fight for it or else all of these rights, these basic rights that we fought for, like I said, literally fought, bled and died for the most basic of things uh, will be taken from us. So I think that the fight for humanity that we talk about so much here on the show, I think one aspect of that in terms of how it shows up in the U.S. is the fight to protect some of these basic rights. But I'm curious how you see it. Yeah, you know, Sean, and, and I'm, I'm definitely glad to, to be able to be on uh, today and, you know, every once in a while while I'm going through this whole process. I miss having adult conversations about, you know, serious things. Things while I'm going through all this dialysis stuff, because, you know, it can get overwhelming. But, you know, it's wild when I think about the way we are fighting for things that we have literally won. Like like you just said, we literally our ancestors, my grandparents, I, I just happen to be talking to my aunt today 
and she was telling me about how my grandmother joined the NAACP when my mother uh, and her cousins integrated the high school in their hometown, our hometown, Jarrett, Virginia, little old town, 90 miles south of Richmond, very racist at the time, practically run by the Klan. Uh, there were, you know, death threats against my grandmother and her uh, uh, cousins and her, you know, her family members for, you know, basically threatening them that if they allowed their kids to integrate this uh, uh, high school at the time, then, you know, there would be crosses burned on lawns and there'd be houses burned down. And my grandfather was, I think he worked in the military, he was in the military. And I think he worked at Fort Lee at the time. So he wasn't there. So my grandmother, to, to have a sense of protection, called the NAACP and said, you know, what, can you all protect us if anything happens to us? And they said, absolutely. So, you know, so my, my mom and her cousins integrated the high school. They went through, you know, really horrible stuff. But these are battles that we have won, the right to vote, the basic human right of any person who is supposed to be a citizen of any country. And I, I, I was telling my aunt that, you know, if we were truly American citizens, we wouldn't have to be fighting for this basic right that every citizen of every country has, the ability and the right to cast your vote in a democratic election, which to me, Sean, calls into question the, the very idea that the United States is and ever was a democracy, because how can a democracy deny the right to the to participate in the democratic access uh, of uh, in the democratic process of people that are supposed to be citizens of its country? That's not a democratic uh, uh, action at all. That's fascism, right? So when we understand that we have already fought this battle to beat back the fascist element and to snatch our right to vote back from the fascist element in this country, we are still in this position of having to once again beat back the resurgence of the same fascist element. I think we need to make no mistake, Sean, that the people, these far right and, and center right, and the, the, the Democrats aren't too far from the center right, but these the, definitely these far right uh, uh, capitalist corporatist elements, they are absolutely the same kinds of fascists that went after the destruction of Reconstruction, that destroyed the Reconstruction government and, and snatched away basic human rights from black people after uh, the end of the Civil War. This is the same thing. So you know, I think this also brings to mind a couple, a, a, another thing, the idea that for some people, the Civil War has never stopped being a battle. They're still fighting the Civil War. They are still trying to make sure that we do not have, we and poor people by extension, don't have an equitable share, an equal share in the process of this society. They always want to keep us on the margin. So I think that, you know, if we are able to connect this continuing struggle against fascism that the descendants of African people have always been fighting and connect that with 
the struggle against this capitalist dictatorship that now poor people are fighting and really have always been fighting. But I think if we can do a better job at connecting these very similar struggles, because we're fighting the same enemy, I think, Sean, this time we can win. But I also believe because I know this is true of all revolution, it's not a rest on your laurels type of, of victory. It is a, we've won this battle and we've got to keep a better eye and be better at organizing than these folks uh, have gotten over on us, uh, or, you know, this time, Sean. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, to be clear, what we're discussing here, these are not just the ramblings of a couple of uh, uh, angry lefties. The reality of uh, how the United States or what became the United States views the concept of democracy is embedded in its very fabric from the very beginning. And uh, just as an example, I'm thinking of the uh, Federalist Papers. This was a collection of 85 essays uh, laid out by people like uh, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, the one y'all was uh, paying to go see rap on stage a little while ago. And uh, John Jay, who was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court in this country, he was reported by George Washington himself and is credited with saying those who own the country ought to govern it. And as it turns out, he was also uh, uh, related either by blood or through marriage to some of the wealthiest and most prominent uh, families in this country as well. So just to give kind of a, a, a class character to to what they're talking about here. And specifically with the uh, concept of the Electoral College, which, as we note on the show always, this is a relic of slavery, something that acts as a bulwark against democracy and not a facilitator of it. Uh, James Madison wrote, quote, hence it is that democracies have ever been spectacle of turbulence and contention have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. That's James Madison. Alexander Hamilton said, quote, it was desirable that the sense of the people should operate in the choice of the person to whom so important a trust was to be confided to men chosen by the people for the special purpose. It was equally desirable that the immediate election should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the to the station, a small number of persons. So what does this mean? This means from the very beginning, the concept of a direct democracy, one person, one vote was seen as a threat to the nascent capitalist class in the United States. They knew that their power and that their wealth would be under threat if direct democracy was able to take hold in the country that became the United States of America. And this is also why when we bring up a reconstruction here lately about why I raised the fact that uh, what made reconstruction uh, you know, so amazing and it's such an important thing to study is not simply the fact that, oh, we had these black people in, in, in a positions of government, but the fact that their policies and the things that they were putting forth fundamentally had a working class character. Here again, race, class, capital. You feel what I'm saying? And so this again is why 
the incessant and constant propaganda and miseducation of the people of the United States of America, along with the stunting and the blunting of their political imagination. That's why it's so important to the ruling class, because if we actually knew our history, not this Disneyland uh, uh, glossy idea of history that we're all fed uh, through the education system and through uh, popular media and things like that. If we really knew about the character of these things, if we knew about the reality of things like the Federalist Papers and how democracy, direct democracy, was never supposed to be reality in the United States, well, then I think we would think quite differently not only about this country, but about our role in it. And above all else, we'd be thinking about what it is that we have to do to bring about a real democracy here in this country. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's 2-0252-11320. I'm in here chopping it up with my co-host, Jackie Lukeman. And we have a caller on the line here, Tarif. Tell us what's on your mind. How y'all doing? I have um, a couple of, like, full comments. First, I, I, um, I want to say it's free Julian signs. You have a uh, meeting tomorrow with the LaRusseOrganization.com, the Schindler Institute. You have Vanessa Bidley, Tucker Carlson, and uh, President of Uganda is going to be the uh, guest. They're going to be speaking through the um, 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 live stream service. Also, Saudi Arabia and Russia uh, agreed upon cutting two men barrel of oil per day. That's going to drive up the gas here in the United States up again in hyperinflation as well. Um, the seem like Nord Stream 2 pipeline is going to be repaired in no time. So that means that's good for the... Um, the German economy, and also I have an opinion. I think the neocons is behind the pipeline exploding in the, the Baltic Sea, the, the North Stream pipeline, and they've done that to basically put the blame on Joe Biden so they get rid of him, push the Santos and Mike Papayo so they can take over in 2024. Then they were going to switch plans from Russia to China to go to war with China in 2025, 2026. That's just my opinion. Thank y'all for taking my call. Well, thank you, Tariq. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you uh, again soon. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of uh, how you laid forth these dynamics with uh, China and Russia, I mean, I think certainly uh, the U.S. and its uh, proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, I've noted on the show about how Washington has studiously kind of kept China at the periphery of uh, that narrative, sort of bringing them in and, and pushing them back and 
kind of putting them on a back burner in a sense as they saw fit. And then, of course, as we've been seeing here lately, these ongoing uh, infringements from the U.S. government with these delegations to Taiwan and things like that in clear violation of the spirit and letter of uh, uh, the one China policy and and things like this. And so without question, uh, I think that uh, this is these are dynamics that certainly we should continue to observe and to discuss within the context of how U.S. imperialism in decline is uh, operating. And I also think that the case of Julian Assange is uh, a sort of an example of that as well. And you know, what's interesting, thinking about Julian Assange, this is a complete aside, but it just so happened that today, because uh, uh, I've been reading um, Carol Boyce Davies' uh, great book about Claudia Jones, uh, Left of Karl Marx. And, you know, first of all, highly uh, uh, recommend that people read that book. Claudia Jones, I think, has become more of a popular figure in uh, recent years. We actually had Dr. Davies on the show a few years ago when the, when the book first came out to discuss this. But specifically what stuck out to me and what I was reading today was Claudia Jones as a journalist and how that factored into her suppression her political imprisonment and ultimately her deportation and exile, because ultimately she was convicted uh, along with other um, members of the Communist Party at that time under uh, uh, pieces like the Smith Act and the McCarran Act and things like that. Matter of fact, uh, Jones and other uh, uh, communists were um, held and detained in what was called the McCarran Wing of Ellis Island and Jones herself sort of pointed out the dark irony of them being um, imprisoned at Ellis Island, sort of literally in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty and things like that. But what am I saying? I'm saying that Claudia Jones is someone who was under attack basically for a thought crime. And she articulates this clearly. She talks about how she's under attack for being a black Caribbean communist woman. And for having the audacity to write and speak to those ends. And Davies goes on to talk about how these different acts like the Smith Act and the McCarran Act that I was pointing out conflates uh, communist politics and ideas with the violent overthrow of the United States, even if. The people in question, like Claudia Jones, never advocated for such a thing. But it's an important thing for the state to do that to criminalize dissent. And so for me, there's a connection there between this and uh, the political imprisonment of Julian Assange, whose only crime was uh, doing actual journalism. As it happens, his uh, journalism uh, uh, was to expose the crimes of the United States and other countries, the atrocities, I should say, that these different governments have engaged. And so, uh, Jackie, when we consider uh, this whole piece and watch how censorship and the suppression of uh, alternative views um, are playing out, even to this day, we can actually track a lineage of this. And, you know, in terms of Claudia Jones, I mean, we take a step back and see that um, this is an example of the profound anti-communism in the United States. On the one hand, I would argue that anti-communism is almost an unofficial um, uh, 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 religion here in the United States. 
And so looking at someone like Assange, although, you know, he's, uh, you know, decidedly uh, not a communist, he's being framed as a, a criminal for simply saying what is true. And one thing I always point out about uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks is that if you look at the criticisms and attacks on Julian Assange, it's never an issue of his actual work. The issue is not that he was uh, publishing lies or rumors or that the reporting was not sharp. It's that he had the audacity to be critical of these different governments. And I mean, his life has just been completely uh, thrown into disarray because of it. I mean, it's, it's awful uh, what has happened to him. And so I feel that when we look at Claudia Jones, when we look at um, Julian Assange, when we look at other incarcerated journalists like Mumia Abu-Jamal and others, we see that we're living in a moment uh, where these very issues that have never really gone away uh, have once again reared their ugly heads. And as organizers, not only should, should we be aware of that, but I think we should factor that in and have that be something that uh, reminds us of the importance, not only of uh, uh, alternative media, but of proper political education. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's definitely true. And I and I have to agree that book uh, left of Karl Marx is is absolutely fantastic. Um, and, and I, too, urge everyone to to get a copy and read it and learn more about Claudia Jones. Um, I, I mean, when we think about the fact that uh, what you said, Sean, about, you know, anti-communism being almost the unofficial religion in this country, when you think about the very long history of everything this country's institutions have done to, quote unquote, root out the communist faction, the communist sympathizers uh, within the country and everything the government has done and continues to do to oppose communism around the world. I mean, it's it, it really causes me to wonder what, what is so horrible about and, and I hope it causes other people who are not as politically aware uh, and, and who don't quite understand what communism is. It, I hope it causes them to wonder when they learn about this history of this government uh, and the government repression of people like Claudio Jones and, and Paul Robeson and Harry Haywood and, and other renowned communists and how they were treated by this uh, country, uh, you know, all the black Southern communist labor organizers uh, in the 40s and uh, the 30s who were, you know, brutally repressed by this government. I hope it causes people to ask, what is so terrible about communism that this government hates it so much? Because I think that when we peel back the layer of just the the rote pat answer that the U.S. government gives that, you know, communism is undemocratic. And then we see the lengths that this country has gone to destroy entire countries that are communist uh, and to uh, brutally repress people who are communist in this country, I think I, I think it would be helpful if people are asking, well, wait a minute, what is it about communism that is so much of a terrible threat to this country that these are the links they would go to to 
you know, oppose it or destroy it? And why does it need to be destroyed? And I think that's where we organizers should have that inroad to have conversations with people about what communism is, what socialism is, what it decidedly is not, and why the government of this country really is so opposed to communism. And it's really because this government is a capitalist imperialist system. And it it cannot let go of the fact that it believes the very founding ideology of this country is that it has this divine mandate to control the rest of the world. And that means controlling the resources of all, uh, all other countries for the benefit of the ruling class in this country. And communism that exists in other countries and socialist policies does not let that happen. So I, I think that, you know, when it is, it is helpful for us organizers to push people, to kind of prod people to ask these questions. I know what the government says what communism is. What do you think communism is? And when we start getting these answers, well, I don't know. Then that's, I think, where we can go in, Sean, and give people that political education that is so desperately, desperately needed, especially now. Absolutely. And we have another caller on the line here. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, um, I'm just tuning in. I'm sorry if I've missed some of it, but I was just wondering if you could, you know, speak to the nature of white supremacy being tied so uh, necessarily to anti-communism and how, you know, the most successful and the most, quote unquote, you know, like dangerous threats to American hegemony have been anti-colonial socialist projects. You know, whether it's in Russia or in China or Burkina Faso or in anywhere in Latin America and just how that kind of ripples down even on like the personal level where to me, the idea of whiteness is a kind of a fear of communal control and an an irrational fear and sort of directly opposed to proletarianism and, you know, a, a collective consciousness where whiteness is this very individualistic, nuclear family against all odds and, and severely threatened by any sort of social imposition, whether it's good or bad, it's just like a reactionary kind of attempt to, to, to distance yourself from a a community in a way. And that, that's kind of like, I guess where we're at whiteness wasn't always anti-communist, but it wasn't a position to become anti-communist, you know, in the 20th century with, you've got European ideologies as well that were popping up, you know, the German ideology, Polish identity, the the nationalist version of the Ukrainian identity all kind of throw in their lot with the white supremacist imperialist project. And we're seeing like those kind of ideas being threatened today. Um, I, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts. You know, that's a really interesting question. And I think for me, it, the, the simplest way I think that connection can be explained is that white supremacy is, you know, the idea that there is a ruling class of people who, you know, are, are European descended. So those people get all the stuff. They control all the stuff. They don't want to share the stuff with anybody else. And they don't want anybody else to have any of those things. And I think that is exactly the same uh, idea that imperialism rests on, right? Because that that is imperialism is the the 
the uh, uh, logical extension of capitalism. It is the internationalization of capitalism where, you know, capitalists don't want other people to have the benefit of their own resources in their own countries. The imperialists want to control those things and other resources. So it, 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 follows for me if i think about it that way in the most simple terms i can i can i can come up with that white supremacy is very much tied to anti-communism i mean even though you know there are plenty of uh uh you know people who are white supremacists who probably never think about communism or socialism but the idea of one unique special group of people, a ruling class of sorts, controlling and hoarding everything for everyone else and depriving other people, I think that falls right in line with imperialism and anti-communism, because that is what the entire capitalist order is uh, founded upon, a small group of people hoarding all of the resources and not allowing the other people to enjoy their just benefits of those resources. I mean, and communism, as we know, is a system of shared uh, uh, ownership where the the working class uh, controls production and reaps the benefits of production. White supremacy doesn't want that, and imperialists don't want that. So that that's how I think of that. Uh, I, I think in the simplest terms I can think of, Sean. Yeah, and you know, I think fundamentally. At, at, at root and at base, <clears throat> what we got to remember, of course, is that white supremacy and capitalism are inextricably linked. And then when you talk about the different uh, national liberation struggles that were going on at one time, that's directly connected to imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism and therefore being a certain manifestation of white supremacy uh, uh, on a global scale. And also when we talk about the concept of whiteness, excuse me, the, the development of a sort of broad white identity, the concept of whiteness, the concept of white people as we understand them is not only relatively new, but we should also understand it as a fundamental development in consolidating what is today the United States of America. So that's how some of these European groups that were not white once upon a time became white out of a necessity for this capitalist state. So Italians, Greeks, Irish, European Jews, there are others that we can name that were not always considered white here in the United States basically had to be brought into the fold, as you will, as a kind of uh, as a kind of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for as a kind of way, uh, I suppose, to, to, to bludgeon any uh, a real effort at sort of uh, uh, trying to stem the tide of what became the American capitalist project, if that makes sense. And so then understanding that communism is uh, sort of the antithesis to capitalism. This is something that is well understood by the capitalist class. That's why they, that's why the, the anti-communism has to be uh, uh, so profound. And since white supremacy is so necessary and essential to the maintenance of capitalism 
and imperialism, that then means the suppression and exploitation and genocide and enslavement and abuse of uh, uh, people who we would, you know, maybe call whatever, uh, people of color, non-white people, uh, a world majority people, however you want to say. And that's why we saw those national liberation struggles. You know what I mean? In all of these uh, sorts of different countries and all these anti-colonial struggles as well. And so then uh, 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 a effort against communism and an anti-communist thrust then sort of fundamentally means uh, a campaign against those very same elements of world majority people. And it also uh, uh, means or entails and necessitates the exploitation and suppression of a lot of those same groups as they're represented here in the United States. So uh, black Americans, indigenous folks, uh, uh, Latin Americans, Arab folks in this country, Asian folks in this country, all the different ethnic groups that we can name. It's all part and parcel of this same project. And so a concept like uh, communism, number one, obviously, uh, is meant to completely not only remove the uh, uh, sort of dictatorship of uh, capital, but is meant to bring in a dictatorship of poor, working, and oppressed people. And who are the people that populate that class element? By and large, it is people of color. You see what I mean? And so, therefore, racism is absolutely fundamental to anti-communism. And we've had guests um, that have talked about this before on the show. There's a reason why a red scare is always happening alongside a black scare. If we go back to, you know, that 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 original McCarthyite period, now it feels like we're in a new McCarthyite period. But in the first one, it's no coincidence then that we saw all these attacks and imprisonment and other uh, uh, forms of attacks on, you know, some prominent black members of the Communist Party, like uh, uh, Claudia Jones, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Ben Davis, Henry Winston, who, who was in prison. He went blind in prison, Henry Winston did, because of medical neglect that he suffered. And when he got out, what did he say? He said, they took my sight, but they could never take my vision. And so this is what we mean when we talk about how white supremacy is inherent to anti-communism. And although certain elements of the capitalist ruling class uh, uh, like to pretend to be anti-racist, they are sworn to uphold this system. And therefore, is it incumbent on you and I to engage a struggle to overturn that system and to remove that class from power and to put in power our class? So that finally our interest can be the core priority of a society instead of that of a, a minority that literally doesn't care if we live or die. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukemont is here as we keep the movement moving on. And Jackie, I also wanted to talk about this uh, this recent issue, uh, uh, it's a labor issue here in the United States as we continue to see uh, uh, different labor struggles take hold in gang strength. Uh, and people may have seen this video of this Amazon Fulfillment Center, uh, uh, namely the JFK 8 Fulfillment Center in Staten Island, New York City, where basically Amazon tried to pressure uh, uh, workers to go back to work in this facility after a fire uh, broke out in a, a cardboard uh, compactor. And uh, reportedly about 650 Amazon workers walked off the job in that moment. And the Amazon labor union is calling this uh, uh, effort the quote, perhaps the largest collective action ever taken by Amazon workers. Now, the fire broke out on October 3rd, like I say, in this uh, cardboard compactor, while day shift workers were still on the job. And I'm reading this report from our friends at People's Dispatch. Now, um, according to these reports, this same compactor already had smoke coming out of it a month ago. But did Amazon replace it? No, they refuse. And then after uh, the firework out, uh, uh, the, the day shift workers say that they were uh, sent home early with, you know, promises of still uh, uh, receiving their pay. A fire was eventually put out and things like this. But the night shift workers who claim who came later claimed that there was still smoke that was there. And some of them were concerned about inhaling the smoke and the effects that that might have on them. And so around 8 p.m., uh, Amazon night shift workers uh, uh, were sent out. The, the, the bosses claimed that it was a, quote, safe work environment and sent them back out onto the floor. And this is when uh, the night shift workers uh, sort of spontaneously uh, uh, not only walked out, but demanded to be uh, uh, sent home with pay. And, you know, it, it, this, I think, is such a great example of how working class consciousness spurs on struggle and spurs on movement. You know what I mean? Because I feel like there just comes a point where, I mean, people, people are very aware when they're not valued. And in a situation like that, where it's so blatant and you're talking about fire and inhaling smoke and your personal safety and the fact that your safety doesn't seem to be much of a concern for this massive uh, 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 corporate entity, it, it sparks something in people's hearts, in their minds and in their spirits. And it stokes a kind of righteous rage or divine discontent to where they say enough is enough. We make the profit for Amazon, not Jeff Bezos. He sits around uh, twiddling his th- I mean, he got time to shoot up in space while they're uh, uh, busting their hump inside uh, these warehouses and, and things like this. I mean, we, re- we reported here on the show about the issue of uh, Amazon workers not even being able to use the bathroom when they when when they need to you know what i mean and so it shows i think the depth of cruelty and exploitation that not only happens at amazon but is inherent to the capitalist system itself and so not only do i think it's important for us to 
support these kinds of actions, but for us to understand and realize the importance of organized labor in a people's struggle and how it all connects to the importance of this broader people's movement that is needed uh, to overcome this and so many other issues facing our class, Jackie. Yeah, I mean, this this story is, you know, horrific, but it's also, you know, typical of Amazon. It is not just typical of Amazon. It's really typical of these kind of industrial workplaces across the country, these fulfillment warehouses. Walmart has, uh, you know, an abysmal record of uh, injuries on the job in their fulfillment centers. Amazon actually leads Walmart in uh, employee injuries on the job. Uh, One of the most unsafe places for employees to work. And I think a part of the story that is really uh, even more encouraging, Sean, other than, you know, the 600 uh, plus people who walked uh, off the job, it's the hundred people who occupied the human resources office. Because I think, you know, the, 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 the role of human resources in corporate culture, whether it's Amazon or, you know, any other corporate organization that's smaller than Amazon, I don't think people realize that, you know, human resources doesn't exist to help the workers. It's they're not there to benefit the workers. Human resources exists to protect the company's interests. And at least a hundred of these employees were like, nope, you're going to listen to us now because we're not going to work in an unsafe environment. And, you know, this, I think the fact that uh, this was a recurring problem and that Amazon uh, managers just just decided that, okay, it's it's safe to, to go back to work with this piece of machinery still smoking in, in the warehouse, I, I think it will embolden uh, the push for even more union organizing among Amazon warehouse workers. I think we're going to see more of that. And I think this that we're going to see even more union organizing uh, in other industries. I'm hoping it hits Walmart very, very soon. Um, and and spreads the car across the country because I do believe, Sean, that workers, that the people are realizing exactly what you said in the beginning. We're the ones who make the profit for these companies. We are the ones who made it possible for Amazon, for Jeff Bezos uh, to, to go to the moon. We're the ones who produce the profit for the Walton family's wealth. So you are going to listen to our demands in providing safe working conditions, better better benefits and better pay. Or else, I think as these Amazon workers showed, your profits, we will cease to produce them. Yeah. Yeah. And see what what makes that a powerful thing, of course, is a realization on behalf of the workers that, you know, they are uh, that they're the ones that are needed and that the company needs them and cannot operate without them. And that when you're a worker, excuse me, and this is something that uh, I feel like we've heard throughout the labor movement for some years. When you're a worker who is exploited in that way, who has your wages stolen and having that surplus basically uh, uh, trickle up to that same wealthy minority that we're talking about when we discussed the capitalist class, is that your sharpest weapon can be your ability to withhold your labor. But of course, that only really has an impact if it happens on a collective 
basis. And of course, this is the fundamental value of having a labor union. And I should also note, it is why labor rights and labor unions have historically come under such attack here in the capitalist United States. And so it, it, it can signal such a considerable shift, not even considerable. I won't go so far as to say a profound shift in people's thinking and their self-conception and even in how they sort of identify themselves as a worker to realize that you do have power. Because so much of how the exploitation of capitalism plays out is disempowering and makes you feel disempowered and plants this uh, kind of thinking that not only do you not have power, but you never can and should never try. And so this is what conditions people to just sort of show up, punch the clock, do what they got to do punch back out and go home. And people don't, and and people oftentimes think that this is all that's within their ability to do. And they may even say, well, yeah, we have all these issues, but ultimately what can we really do? And so this is a question I think that is answered by these types of actions and not just the action like we're seeing at Amazon, but like we're seeing at Starbucks, And all these other uh, uh, industries and corporations that we can name where we see similar trends playing out. And so, as ever, the core question here is one of power. Who wields it? Who has a right to it? And what you and I need to do to actually get it. And there's a reason why I'm always raising this 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 idea that we should not be scared of power. This is what we need, right? It is literally what we need. The reason why we're in the state that we're in as a people, as a class, is because we don't hold the reins of power. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have power because as I've been sort of breaking down, the ability to struggle, the ability to organize, is power in and of itself. Organization has always been the sharpest and most devastating weapon of our class. And that is why the suppression of those uh, uh, organizations and of those movements has always been a constant project of the ruling class here in the United States. So this history that we're laying forth, these politics that we're describing are deeply interconnected and have been a part of the broader dynamic of what has become the United States of America over the last several centuries. Right. So I just think it's important that we know this is not some new development. This is not an issue where uh, capitalism was basically operating fine and, you know, just kind of went off the path somewhere, just went rogue or lost its way. No, no, no. Capitalism and its ruling class has always been very clear about the path that it's on and what it needs to do to stay on that path. And you and I, as a class, need to have that same level of clarity and that same strength of organization and class consciousness to counter these conditions and these uh, uh, developments that are bedeviling the whole lot of us here in the U.S. and indeed all across this earth. And so the question of power then cannot be ignored. In fact, I think to ignore the question of power is to abandon the fundamental struggle of our class. 
And see, this is serious. We got to get serious about this thing. When we step back and take a look at uh, how things are unfolding here in the United States and how they seem poised to continue to unfold. So if we don't organize, if we don't build a movement, if we don't fight, then we are in effect signing our own death certificate. And I don't know about you, my friends, but I don't intend to do that. And that's why it's so important then that we get organized and join organizations because this ruling class, these capitalists who need our blood, sweat, and tears, who need our labor, who need to exploit us to sustain themselves, they would love nothing more than for us to give up hope. They would love nothing more than for us to abandon our own interests and our own principles. They would love nothing more than for us to succumb to this rank and vile individualism that is intrinsic to this capitalist system. Why? Because if we do that, they win. They win. Humanity gets plunged into oblivion. And the story itself, I suppose, ends. And when I say plunged into oblivion, what am I speaking to specifically? I'm speaking to the prospect of nuclear war. That is absolutely, I think, a serious potentiality when we look at how the U.S. specifically instigated and continues to sort of maneuver through this uh, war in Ukraine, which is escalating. Make no mistake about it. So, my friends, this is why we have this fundamental thrust, this uh, almost a mission statement of by any means necessary as a program for the entirety of its existence. That's why we insist on a daily basis that we get organized because if we don't, quite simply, we're done for. And you see, we're already in a capitalist culture that needs death, that loves death, that deals death to poor working and oppressed people. But what you and I must decide for ourselves is that we won't be given over to that. We won't let ourselves be taken in by hopelessness or cynicism or being discouraged. No, we won't be swallowed up by this culture of death, but we will fight for a system and a society that gives life and life more abundantly. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.